Good morning to everyone. If you are visiting with us this morning, uh, we are continuing in this uh, big picture series that I've been doing for a couple Sundays now. And really what we're trying to do is to take each book of the Bible and to uh, step back and look at the big picture of that book, right? So what we want to do is figure out what is the main message of that book? You know, when you when you go into a Bible series and you're studying on your own, uh, many times as you go into that book, you can kind of get lost after a couple weeks of where you're at and where you start and what, what was even the point in the beginning. So by taking a step back and looking the, at the book as a whole, uh, you can kind of learn a few things that you might not otherwise as you're diving in deep. And so today we're picking up in the book of Numbers. And so, what's the story so far? So, at this point, um, Israel has left on their exodus uh, from slavery in Egypt, and God had brought them to Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with them there, and Israel rebelled. But despite Israel's rebellion, uh, God graciously provided a way for Israel to live uh, near his holy presence with the tabernacle. And so... The book of Numbers begins as Israel is wrapping up their uh, one-year stay at Mount Sinai, and they're heading out into the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land. And so the book's storyline is designed according to the stages of that journey. So that's what we have laid up here. So the first section, it begins at Mount Sinai, that's chapters 1 to 10. And then they travel for a little bit in chapters, uh, the second half of chapter 10 to chapter 12. The middle section focuses on their stay in the wilderness of Paran. And then they travel again uh, in chapters 20 to 21. And from there they arrive in the plains of Moab. And that's kind of where the book ends, is it? The plains of Moab, which is right across from the promised land. Now, diving into the first section right there uh, in Mount Sinai, it opens up with a census of the people, and the people are getting numbered, and that's actually where the book gets its name from. And then it goes into different laws about how the tribes of Israel were to be arranged in their camp. And so the tabernacle was to be at the center, and then around that tabernacle, the priests and the Levites... And then around that, the 12 tribes neatly arranged with God's holy presence at the center of their existence as a people. So it's kind of all symbolic of how God was to be at the center of their lives. Now, if you've studied numbers, uh, you'll know that uh, this is just one picture of how the camp may have been arranged based on how you interpret it. Um, depending on how you interpret it, it could have also been arranged to look more like a plus sign like that. Um, so two different uh, options. Um, this one looks messier because my arrows are going everywhere. So, you know, we'll, we'll pretend that's, that's the actual, uh, one that it was, was right there. Um, but either way, uh, whichever one you, you prefer, um, the book of numbers kind of shows how it was set up. And this is all followed, uh, by a series of laws that are expanding upon purity, right? So if you remember back in Leviticus, we talked a lot about purity and what those purity laws were meant to accomplish. So uh, for your own notes, if you want to go back and look at Leviticus 
11 to 15, and then chapters 18 to 20, you'll get a lot more detail on what these purity laws were meant to accomplish. But basically, the entire point was that God is holy, and therefore Israel needs to be holy. God is set apart. He's the giver of life. And Israel, being corrupt and in their sin, couldn't be in God's presence. And so the entire book of Leviticus is meant to uh, be a fix for that. It's meant to be a way that they can live within God's holy presence. Now in chapter 10, the cloud of God's presence, which has been hovering over the tabernacle, it picks up and it guides Israel away from Mount Sinai and into the wilderness. And that's where things start to go very, very wrong for them. So in chapter 11, the people start to complain about their hunger and their thirst and how they want to go back to Egypt. And in chapter 12, Aaron and Miriam, Moses' own uh, brother and sister, start opposing him and bad-mouthing him in front of all the people. So the trip is not off to a good start. And the next section begins with the Israelites arriving in the desert of Paran, which is about halfway to the promised land. And so at this point, uh, God tells Moses to send out 12 spies, one from each tribe, so that they can scout out the promised land. So the spies go out and they all come back, and 10 of them have a bad report. They say that there's no chance that Israel can survive because of the Canaanites who are inhabiting the land, that the Canaanites will utterly wipe them out. But two spies give a good report. These spies are Caleb and Joshua, and they can say that God can save them. God can allow them to take over the promised land. But their report kind of goes unheard because the 10 spies who brought back the bad report kind of whip the people up into a fearful rage and they start planning a mutiny. They start wanting to appoint a new leader to take them back to Egypt. So God is understandably angry at this point. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. He calls on God to be faithful to his promises to Abraham. And so God does, but not at the expense of his justice. He gives the Israelites what they want, which is to not enter the land. He sentences this generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they die. Only their children will get to enter the promised land. Only their children and the two spies who gave the good report, Joshua and Caleb. Now, you'd think that this severe consequence would wake them up, would wake the people up to uh, their moral decay. But instead, it gets even worse. So in the next story, there's a whole group of Levites that begin a rebellion, and they challenge Moses and Aaron's leadership, saying that they've gone too far. You know, who do you think you are to be talking to us this way? So God deals severely with these Levites, and he renews his commitment to Moses and Aaron as the leaders of Israel. Now, at this point, they leave the region of Paran, and they hit the road, and it goes downhill once again. The Israelites start complaining again about their thirst, and so God tells Moses to speak to a rock to bring water out for all the people. But Moses doesn't really do this. At this point, the people's complaining finally gets to Moses, and it causes him to misstep. He strikes the rock instead of just speaking to it, and he says, You rebels, do we have to bring water for you? 
And so Moses dishonors God by putting him in God's place as the one who brings the water out of the rock. And so Moses brings down on himself the same fate as the wilderness generation, which is to not be into, to not be able to enter into the promised land. After this, the Israelites rebel yet again, and God brings a very strange judgment on them at this point. Venomous snakes come and bite the people. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people again, and God tells them to do this, to make a bronze snake and to lift it up on a pole so that whoever looks of this snake would be healed of their poisonous snake bites. Jesus actually refers to this event in John chapter 3 uh, in verses 14 to 15, if you want to turn over there. John 3 in verse 14 to 15, it says, And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So how is this snake symbolic of evil, or uh, symbolic of Jesus? Aren't snakes usually meant to encompass evil, right? But it's a bronze serpent, which is key. Bronze in the Bible is often used as symbolism for judgment. And so you have this bronze serpent being lifted up to convey the idea of evil being judged, right? So bronze equals judgment, the snake equals sin, and so having it lifted up equals the idea of it being judged. Just as Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us on the cross, where it was judged. And so you see that this strange symbol starts to make a lot more sense. You might ask, but isn't, isn't this an idol? Isn't this something that the people looked at and worship? Well, no, it's not actually. Because idols were forbidden in Exodus 20, in, cha or in chapter 20, verse 4. Exodus forbids idols, but this was a sanctioned symbol by God. And they were not to worship it, they were merely to look to it for salvation. And it is a strange symbol, but it speaks to the challenge that uh, God has by being faithful to his covenant. He's right to bring justice on the Israelites' evil, but even God's justice gets transformed into a source of life who would look to God for healing. So now at this point, the people head into the plains of Moab. And the first part of this section focuses on the strange figure of Balaam. The king of Moab, named Balak, is bothered by this huge group of people that's traveling through his territory, and so he hires this Balaam character to pronounce curses on Israel. Now, if you're like me and you get Balaam and Balak mixed up all the time when you go back through this story, an easy way to remember that is that Balaam ends with an M. Balaam is the man, right? Balak is the king, and so that ends with a K. So Balak is the king, Balaam is the man. And this man Balaam, he's, uh, he amounts to some sort of, of prophet. He's some man with some level of spiritual gifts or abilities, right? And so Balaam is hired to curse the people, but three times he finds that he cannot curse the people. He can only utter blessings upon Israel. And so remember God's promise to Abraham from Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, in verse 2 to 3, it says, And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. 
and the one who curses you, I will curse. And so not only can Balaam not curse Israel, but God actually gives him a vision of a future Israelite king who will one day bring God's justice to all nations. And this vision recalls Jacob's promise to Judah in Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis chapter 49, in verses 8 to 10, it says, As for you, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares stir him up? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the people. Now, it's, it's worth stopping at this point to reflect on the book so far. These rebellion stories in the wilderness, they just heap up on one another, getting worse and worse. And while God does bring partial acts of judgment on Israel, he keeps showing them mercy. He keeps providing food and water for them along the way. And so the Balaam story, it shows God's grace in bright colors. Because here, Israel, they're down in their camp. And this whole time, they're grumbling about their journey, about how God is treating them. Yet in the hills, unbeknownst to them, God is protecting them and even blessing them from their enemies, from Moab. And it's this contrast between Israel's rebellion and God's faithfulness in the wilderness that made these stories so important for later generations of Israel. And so these wilderness stories are retold time and again by later biblical prophets and poets and even the apostles in the Old Testament. If you want to write down a couple of uh, different places you can go and study this further on your own, the prophets Isaiah in chapter 63, Ezekiel in chapter 20, and Jeremiah in chapter 7, they all reference this period of time in history. In Psalms chapter uh, 78, Psalms chapter 95, and Psalms 106 also reference this period of time. And then, of course, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I actually have up there uh, Hebrews 3 and 4, but it's actually Hebrews 5 and 6. So a little typo on my part. But these stories, they always serve as a warning. While God will remain faithful to his covenant promises, he will allow his people to walk away in rebellion and face the consequences. And so from here, the rest of the book focuses on the children of the wilderness generation as they are beginning to prepare to inherit the promised land. They take another census of the new generation, and then they go on to win a number of battles with the people groups around them, and then even a few tribes begin to uh, settle across from the promised land. And so the book ends with the new generation poised to enter the land, and Moses is getting ready to deliver his final words of wisdom and warning. And that's how the book concludes. But what does that mean for us who are not living under the Old Testament, but instead under the New Testament? What are we to do with the book of Numbers? Really think back to the wilderness stories and how they worked for later generations of Israelites. They work the same way for us. They illustrate that God brings judgment and he shows mercy.
In Colossians chapter 2, in verses 13 to 14, it says, And when you were dead in your wrongdoings, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings, having canceled the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I think the story that most highlights this is the story of the bronze serpent, right? That is what Jesus accomplished for us. God's judgment of sin was nailed to the cross so that we could have mercy. Jesus died in our place so that we could have everlasting life. And so this morning I ask you, where will you be numbered? Will you be numbered with those who are saved, who have accepted that mercy that was extended to us through Jesus? Or will you number yourselves among those who reject him, who continue to rebel despite being shown God's mercy and his providence for us over and over again? And so this morning, if you would like to take those first steps, if you would like to begin your journey with Christ, we are going to have this time of invitation. And as we sing this song, you're welcome to come up to the front, be, uh, let your desire to be baptized made known, or if you just need prayers from your brethren for a difficult time that you're going through. Whatever the need may be, let it be known while together, while we stand and while we sing.